I recently went with a couple of other couples to a, a workshop up near Muskegon about a book called How We Love. And in that workshop, it talked about how we often are wounded in various things in our life, whether it's the way we grew up, maybe something tragic happened in our lives, but often those things trigger us and we don't even realize how we've been wounded and, and how it's affected our lives. But often, because of those circumstances, we bring those into our marriage. So this focus was on our marriage, but <clears throat> as I've read the book and as I've pondered the things that we saw and heard at the workshop, I've also realized that those triggers affect us in so many ways besides just our marriage. <clears throat> uh, thinking about my brother, my brother impacted my life. I wouldn't have thought about him impacting my marriage, but he has. Um, so many different things. Um, he affects the way that I respond to people that are aggressive. And in the book, Mylon Yurkovich, the co-author, states that a trigger sometimes takes something from our past and slams it into our present. And we stop and think, where did that come from? Let me give you an idea. If every time you told your mom that you were sad, she looked at you with derision, you felt ashamed as well as sad. And each time the two of you repeated this dance, your memory was strengthened and the association between shame and sadness became stronger. Even as an adult then, you are likely to avoid the consequence and the conscious awareness of sadness at all costs so that you might avoid the accompanying feeling of shame. This won't be good for your friendships, for your marriage, for your parenting, and it will be difficult for you to be empathetic with other sadness. If you, however, encounter a good friend who, when you feel sad, responds with empathy and comfort, then your memory of that feeling of sadness will change, even if ever so little at the first. What am I saying? When we look at our lives, we respond and react to people a certain way, often in a sense as if we have been hardwired to respond that way because of things that happen in our lives. And I want to encourage us, as the picture implies on the screen, that we can impact other people's lives. Yet often in our wounds, in our shame, in our fears, we try to go it alone because it's scary to let other people see us for who we really are, for where we're wounded, whether it's been self-inflicted or otherwise. So we're going to look at some, a few examples from Scripture today and try to put to practice some of the basic principles on relationship, starting with Galatians chapter 6. I'm going to read for context more than what's on the screen, but Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, some might even label that as, as sin or trespass or wound, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, and bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ." Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what is the law of Christ? When Jesus was asked 
Uh, and he returned the favor to the Pharisee or the law keeper. He said, well, what do you say it is? And he said in Luke 10, verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. In Galatians, it says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law. By bearing each other's burdens, we fulfill the law of loving God and loving others. You might say, well, you know, all I really need is the Lord. Especially in this area that I'm, I'm wounded or I'm weak or I'm fearful. Psalm 55 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. So yes, there's truth there. Uh, Matthew 11 says, come to me all who are labor and, and, and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yes, we find strength, we find peace, we find comfort in our Lord Jesus Christ, and in him alone are all of our needs truly met. And although that is true, I would say that God made us to live in community with each other, with others. In fact, he's instructed us to do so. On the screen are a number of things that the Bible calls one anothering for unity, to not grumble with one another or to accept one another, to be gentle, patiently tolerating one another. I don't know about you, but that's kind of hard for me sometimes. Some of you are less than tolerable. Just kidding. Bear with and forgive one another. Confess our sins to one another. Or the next screen tells us that we are to be loving and humility. Now, love just says love one another on the top there, but there are numerous references that go with it. Through love, serve one another. Be devoted to one another. In fact, some of you, I don't know, I see some people hug here. I don't see too many people kissing. But the Bible even says to greet one another with a holy kiss. Humility. Give preference to one another. Serve one another. We don't do this here probably because we don't walk in on sandals after having walked here for miles, but wash one another's feet. <clears throat> the scripture over and over again tells us to be meeting the needs of others. And there's others that aren't on the screen, such as uh, don't judge one another. Don't lie to one another. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And even in the marital relationship, husbands and wives, don't deprive one another. So we're going to look at some of the passages, some of the stories. And, and when I look at these kinds of things, I try to think, where in Scripture is this illustrated? Where do we see this fleshed out? So we're going to look at a few references, and, and they're going to be detailed or listed there with not all the detail that I have, but some examples from Scripture. First, we consider Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. They walked the garden. They shared time with God. And yet, they fell in sin. They fell in relationship. And what did they do? When they fell in sin, they ran and hide. They, they ran and hid themselves. They were ashamed. They said, oh my goodness, we're naked. And what does God do when that happens? He comes to the earth in the cool of the day, apparently something he had done normally on a regular basis, 
And he comes and he says, Adam, Adam, where are you? He pursued to try and draw them out from their hiding. And then they said, well, we were, we were ashamed and we were naked. And he says, who told you you were naked? As if that was a new revelation to them. They'd been naked all this time. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded of you not to eat? And as we look at the relationship with God and with Adam and Eve, they had had an endearing relationship. They'd been doing the work that they had been given to do for quite some time. And when they fell in sin and they were wounded because all of a sudden they were not the way they were supposed to be, God reaches out to them, calls for them, looks for them, seeks them out because he wanted relationship. See, it's a natural response to flee and to hide when we have something in our lives that is hurtful. But God opens up the chance for them to confess and to look for solution. Look at Joseph and his brothers. Joseph, when he was brought into his family, he was the favored son because he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. He had waited, and in fact, he had worked 14 years for that relationship with Leah, or for, with Rachel. And when he first, finally had a boy, Joseph was his favorite son. And guess who realized that along with Joseph? All of the other brothers. I don't know if you are, any of you are a favored child. You, know, don't, you might not want to raise your hand in case any siblings are here. But they see Joseph when he's sent to check on them, and apparently... A while before that, he had given a bad report before. And so when they see him coming, who likes a tattletale? Nobody likes a tattletale. Here comes a tattletale. What's he going to do now? What's he going to? And then they contrive an idea because they despise their brother. Perhaps some of you grew up in a family where you were the despised child, you were the shunned child for whatever reason. Well, they sold him. At least none of you were sold. When he gets to prison or down to Egypt and he's a slave, he's a favored worker, put to work, he's recognized. And then all of a sudden those dreams are dashed because the wife of Potiphar looks for him and starts trying to tantalize him and to bring him into relationship he should not be having. And because he won't go with her, He runs and leaves his coat. She uses it against him. He's wrongly punished. He helps those that are in jail. He encourages those that are in jail. He says, it'll be all right. And he he explains their dreams to them. And then he's forgotten. Joseph had a lot of things in his life that were hard. Have you ever felt forgotten? Have you ever felt used and taken advantage of? And yet Joseph, when he had the opportunity, if you remember the story, his brothers come because of the famine, and he is second in charge. He sees his brother. He has the opportunity to take them and cast them and do anything to them that he wants. The Egyptians wouldn't know the difference. But instead, he forgives. 
He gives them opportunities to rat out their other brothers or to leave them. Takes one into custody, gives them the opportunity to just leave him as if he were dead, like they did him. But through the chances that he gives them, the brothers, he hears them in his own tongue and they don't realize it. But he, he allows them to talk through how they felt badly about what happened to him. And then, oh, we can't let this happen. We can't do this to Benjamin. What about the woman at the well? The woman at the well comes, and what time does she come at day? She comes when no one else really wants to be there. She's hiding. She's avoiding. And when she is thrust into conversation with Jesus, first of all, she's surprised. And he says, give me a drink. And she says, well, don't you have anything to draw water from? And and then as they get into the conversation, he says, you know, if you really knew who was talking to you, you'd ask me to give you water. Because then you would never be thirsty again. She says, oh, I want some of that water. So I don't have to come here like I do every day in the middle of the heat and avoid everybody and I could just stay where I don't need to be in light of everyone. See, she's been pained and he draws to one of the greatest pains in her life and says, go get your husband. And she says, well, he says, don't bother. That's okay. I know you're, you're not with a husband right now. In fact, if he were your husband, he'd be your fifth or sixth anyway. She's like, man, I perceive you're a prophet. No, duh. But he doesn't condemn her because of what he says to her. He's not saying, look at you, you awful, rotten sinner. He draws her in with his love and his desire, her, his desire for her to know the truth. In fact, he, incur, he, by nature of what he's done, sends her back to invite others. And by nature of that, opening herself up to her community, Say, come see a man that told me everything that that is wrong with me. Making her even look at her own wounds and her own sinfulness. What about James, or Jesus and Peter? Peter, pretty bold disciple, finds himself near the very end being wounded the worst because what he was prophesied about comes true. He has denied the Lord three times. The one that he said, I would die for you. People come and say, aren't you the one? No, 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 I'm I'm not with them. Yeah, I'm sure I saw you. No, no, that must have been somebody else. Three times denies and in the last time he curses and says, I never knew who you're talking about. And Jesus comes and invites him and restores him with the same chance of confirming his love for him three times. See, in relationship with all of these, with Adam and Eve, God comes to them personally and invites restoration. Without condemnation, asking questions, inviting them to confess themselves, to bring out the sin into the light. He and Joseph comes to his brothers and he gives them opportunity over some time frame to share and to speak of their own sinfulness. And then when he acknowledges who he is, he weeps with them and cries with them and says, don't be afraid, I love you. I've longed for these embraces. 
the woman at the well, because of her being willing to look at her own sinfulness and not be afraid to tell the others, invites a whole town, and the town for a couple of days spends time with Jesus. And then it says, you know, we don't believe him just because of what you told us. She was sharing, inviting people. But now we believe because we've seen him ourselves, we've heard him ourselves. And Peter, what does he do when he has first realized what he's done and he hears the cock crow? He goes and hides. He goes back to doing what he does best, and that's fish. Away from the limelight, away from everyone else. But Jesus draws him back. See, we can only be healed to the degree that we look at the pain we've endured. Because of the sin in our life, because of shame, because of consequences other people in our lives have put on us, we can only heal to the degree that we look at our own sinfulness and we allow it to be exposed. God called to Adam and Eve, where are you? Why are you hiding? And one of the things that I've learned in one of the most painful areas of my life, I tried for years, I begged God for years to remove that area of my life, to remove that sinfulness, to remove that shame, to remove that awful wickedness. And I knew it was God's desire for me to be saved out of that sinfulness and out of that wickedness. And yet, the power for victory didn't come from my praying relentlessly over time. The power came when it was exposed. My wife saw me for who I was. Something I had tried to keep from her for years. And yet God exposed it in my life and used it. And the crazy thing is, is that began a healing. But more healing began when that was, in a sense, forced upon me to share with more people. And as I opened myself up to people, it was like God said, okay, now I can really pull that out of you. Now I can, because you're allowing it to be seen for what it is, I can eradicate that. And it was painful. One of those times was at the, the recent um, couples getaway in September. The, the lead people there that run that ministry asked me to share my testimony. And I was okay with that because I'd done it with a few people here and there. In the marriage class that I do, I share some of that. And then I realized, oh my goodness, there's 18 couples coming from Lockwood. They're going to see this and hear this. Oh, scared me to death. Great, what are they going to do? And Satan tries to hide and put shame on us to keep us from allowing the light of God's word and what he can do in our lives. See, in Ephesians 5, it says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Because when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Imagine your deepest, darkest fear being like a cancer inside of you. Unless it's brought to light, unless it's seen in an x-ray or an MRI, they can't help you. Some of you know B.J. Shelton. Recently, he was experiencing a lot of pain, and he couldn't understand why. He thought it was gas. 
He's young. He doesn't have problems, right? He went to the ER and they said, oh, you need your appendix removed. And that was a painful experience. And yet now he's able to heal because it was brought to light. It was shed for those that could help him to be seen. But then they had to take a scalpel and dig into his body and pull it out. And some of you are afraid that you're going to have to have the scalpel, or even as God's word is described, a two-edged sword cutting into, piercing into, dividing asunder to the soul and your spirit. That scares you. But I would encourage you that we, as we expose our sin with others, we shine light on our brokenness, then we are seen for who we really are and others can help us out. Proverbs 28, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. James 5.16 compels us to confess your sins or your wounds or your hurts to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Judah and his brothers had hidden the truth of Joseph for decades And when they finally exposed it, they were able to be healed. The woman at the well had tried escaping day in and day out. And yet when she allowed herself to be exposed, she was able to open herself to all of her town and find healing. Peter had gone back to one he had known. And when Jesus lovingly said, Peter, do you love me? He was able to restore relationship. When we allow it to come into the light, we're able to remove and repair. Which comes with confession which comes with working through the hard stuff. James 1.19 tells us to be swift to hear and slow to speak. That means when someone comes to you and they're sharing their struggles, don't try and give them advice right away. Let them speak. Let them share their heart. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Well, when you've opened yourself up for that, it's going to be painful. But allow the truth that your friend will share with you to be a faithful wound of a friend. The brothers of Joseph were released from guilt. The woman was invited back into her town. And Peter was invited to release the lies that had kept him hiding. Part of the restoration process, the repair process. Ephesians 4.15 says, Speak the truth in love that we may grow up into him in every way who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint that is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I am convinced that part of this is realizing as we allow ourselves to be submitted to one another in the truth, that's where real healing happens. That's preparatory to like a husband and wife later in chapter 5 saying, submit and love. But it's in context of we as a body loving one another. 1 Peter 4 verse 8 says, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. It's not the idea of after this service, I don't want you to go out and go up to someone, and I'll pick on Rob because he's close. Rob, let me expose all of your problems. Let me expose, tell me all of your shameful deeds. No, I need to have a relationship with him before anything like that happens. 
But the idea is that as things are exposed and brought to light, we love one another earnestly. And after it's brought to light, we don't spread it for everyone to hear. It doesn't become the gossip of LCC for the next year. It hides it and it covers it back up with love and nurturing and care. In the book, Anatomy of the Soul, by Kurt Thompson, it says, In your life, God's way, in other words, the, the Christian way, the way of Christ, in your life, God's way is about loving him and loving your neighbor with all the parts of you. And this is hard work, especially for those parts of our heart and our soul and our mind that have not had much practice doing that. The wounded parts, the weak parts, or the functions such as memory or emotion that you may not pay much attention to because it's too painful. And as God teaches you to love him and to love others with all of those parts, he teaches you his way. And you undergo in the dialect of what they call in neuroscience, differentiation. Or the strengthening and the maturation of each particular aspect of your heart, your soul, and mind. See, the creation of the undivided heart, an integrated prefrontal cortex, this is from the same book, leads to justice, mercy, and humility. While we might imagine any number of other characteristics of God's kingdom, none are more fundamental than these. Journeying on the high road, therefore, is not an exercise limited to what happens in your own individual mind. It affects us as groups of people. This gentleman has researched and shown that I heal more when I work with you. And your right brain works with my right brain. As we share our stories with each other and as we work with how God and the Holy Spirit is working between us and in us and for us. One last thought. Think about David. The man after God's own heart. Did he have any wounds? Did he have any pains and struggles in his life? Yeah. He was the forgotten son. Jesse, bring out all your sons. Is that all of them? Oh, well, no, David. He's out in the field. The forgotten son. The misunderstood brother. Why are you here to watch this battle? You're just here to see some fun and get out away from the sheep. No, he was here on an exercise that he'd been sent to. The despised worker, his first job outside of the family, and what happens? Saul throws a spear at him. He loses his best friend because he can't stay around the kingdom, and then he loses his best friend because he was murdered. And eventually, his first wife sees him dancing, and she despises him. She hates him for it. In his sin with Bathsheba, Nathan comes to him and he is forgiven because he acknowledges his sin. But when we look at most of his relationships, he doesn't penetrate to really dealing with the wound. He asks God for forgiveness and that is great. But when you look at his children's lives, part of the worst things in David's life is his children. They come after his kingdom His son sleeps with multiple of his wives on top of the rooftop and tries to take his kingdom and tries to kill him. 
And then there's killing within his own family with his brothers, his sons and daughters. And I believe part of that is because David never allowed healing to happen within other people. And as I said with my own illustration, I held my sin and my wound and my hurt at bay. I never told anyone about most of that for most of my life. Healing has begun to happen because I have expressed it and opened it with other people. So I encourage you this morning, the biggest encouragement out of this message is we are to bear one another's burdens. How do we do that? Get to know one another. Get involved in a small group. Get involved in a D group so that they learn to trust you and are able to share their deepest, darkest fears and secrets and woes with you. And when they're ready to fall, in the last month, I called somebody or texted them and said, pray for me, I'm really struggling. And they messaged back, and that was such an encouragement that I know someone knows my needs, someone knows my struggle. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How do we do that? We love one another with our heart, our soul, and our mind. At this time, we'll have communion.